We turn then in God's word this morning again back to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to pick it up at verse 18. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. But we're going to come back to those last two verses. We ended last Sunday evening at that point uh, with those two verses. The Lord uh, in his providence allows us then to come back to them uh, this morning as we uh, think about the supremacy of Christ and his worship. The supremacy of Christ and his worship. Hebrews 12 beginning at 18 then. Let's hear that breathed out word of God to us. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, But also the heavens, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As far as the reading of God's Word, I invite you to leave it open so that you can reference this and other texts that we'll be looking at this morning. Let's again bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this portion of your, your Word, for this beautiful section of your Word. And May we, through the preaching of the word now, have it made more clear in our minds, and may we be obedient to your word and just have a love for your word, and just ask your blessing on Pastor Bob as he brings this message to us, that you bless him by your spirit, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there are three statements that are made in verses 28 and 29 that we want to look at this morning. First of all, there is a statement of fact that is made. Secondly, there is a statement of grace that is given. And thirdly, a statement of responsibility that follows. The statement of fact, the statement of grace, and the statement of responsibility. As I look at these verses, the statement of fact is actually the thing that occurs last. 
the last thing that we have in this 12th chapter is this factual statement. Our God is a consuming fire. That is a statement that the author, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is given as a fact. This is not questionable. This is not debatable. This is not something that he's, he's placing out there before us that, that deals with some sort of responsibility on our part or leaves some sort of question. It is simply a factual statement. Our God is a consuming fire. The whole thing is a statement of fact. First of all, consider with me the fact that he says, our God. Our God. Now remember, he is addressing this, this group of Jewish Christians. Our God. Not the gods of this world that are nothing more than the figment of people's imaginations. I use that reference a lot because I want our children to understand there are no other gods. Allah does not exist. There are no other gods. There is only our God. He is the only one that exists. Separate from all these other religions, separate from all these other teachings. Our God. The one true living God. Now the author could have said it this way. The one, the God that we confess. This morning we heard it again. Who is God? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that Jesus Christ is God coming in the flesh. Our God. Our triune God. Is a consuming fire. Our God, the, the one we believe in. The one that we have put our hope and trust in. The one that we have come to faith to accept the one that we follow, the one that we see displayed for us in the entirety of God's word, from Genesis to Revelation, our God is a consuming fire. Now, what does that mean? That God is a consuming fire. Well, the meaning of the word consuming is consumption. Some of us are pretty good at consuming food. And when we go about consuming food, we leave nothing. Right? We're, we're, we're the lick the platter clean folks. Right? We're, we're the people when it's a good dessert, we, we've got our face in the pan as it were. We, we eat it all up. That's what to consume means. To use up. Our God is one of consuming fire. So that there is nothing left. So that one is 
utterly, wholly, completely. Some of you know that I like fire. I, I like brush fires. I like campfires, right? A few weeks ago, we, we had a big brush pile of, of uh, trees and the brush and so on that I had cut down in the backyard because of uh, our wonderful friend, the emerald ash borer, and all these trees, and we had all these branches, a big pile, a huge pile. Light it on fire. Watch it burn. You go out a few days later and there's nothing left. Wind had blown and the ash was all gone. There's nothing there. This big pile consumed by fire. That's our God. Our God is a consuming fire. One that comes forth as fire so that it consumes fully, totally, completely that which is in front of it. I want you to think of some examples of that from Scripture. Go back with me, for example, to Genesis chapter 19 in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and God raining down fire from heaven so that the cities are destroyed. See, when the author uses this, he's using this, this picture, this picture of God as a consuming fire to Jewish believers who are well steeped, you see, in the Old Testament. They, they, they know of the Old Testament teachings. And so as soon as the words come out, as soon as those words are penned, as soon as they read it, their minds are going back into that Old Testament scripture. And they're thinking, yes, that's what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. But also in the context that we're in here. Okay, remember a few Sundays ago, we're, we're into comparing Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. What's there at Mount Sinai? Fire. In fact, go back to chapter 19 of Exodus for a moment. Exodus chapter 19, where we have this description of what is taking place, of, of God readying the people. Verse 16. So God has, has come to meet with his people that have just come out of Egypt. He's just rescued them. He's just redeemed them. How does God now come to them? Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out to the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly. And at the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down to Mount, on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And how did the people respond? We can't take this. This is too much. Verse 18. 
the Lord had descended on it in fire. In the context, okay? That's where we're at, right? He's just compared Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. Now he's taking them back. Our God is a consuming fire. Remember? Remember what our fathers have taught us about what happened there on Mount Sinai. But we can go further, can't we? We can go to Leviticus chapter 10. Those two priests, Nadab and Abihu, who come into God's presence and offer strange fire to the Lord. And what happened? What does the passage tell us? And fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. Consumed them. Not their clothes. Their clothes were fine. Their clothes didn't even have the smell of smoke. Their bodies were consumed by the fire that came out from the Lord. See, these things are, are going through their minds. Or maybe we'd be going to, to Numbers chapter 16. Go with me there. Numbers chapter 16. This is the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram who thought they had a right to the priesthood and they had the right to leadership. And God says, no, you don't. Right? And those who are gathered with Korah, right? The earth opens up and swallows them. Do you remember the aftermath? 250 folks thought that wasn't right either. They didn't even get God's judgment there. And so they come forward with censors, 250 of these folks, right? Go down to verse 35 of Numbers chapter 16. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. They thought they had a right. They should be priests too. They should be leaders too, not just Aaron and his family. Okay, show up to me with those 250 censors. Let's see what I do. Fire comes out from the Lord. And notice the word, consume them. Our God is a consuming fire. It's actually a direct quote of Deuteronomy chapter 4, where God warns the people about their idolatry and how their idolatry is, is abhorrent to God. He talks about them being covenant people, covenant responsibilities. Look at chapter 4, verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. the end of the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews comes this statement of fact. Our God is a consuming fire. What's he teaching us? What is God teaching us by, by coming here at the end of this 12th chapter and having this individual be inspired to say, I'm Deuteronomy 4.24. Well, if you do any reading of blogs and responses to blogs by 
people way out there on the left side of things, whether it's politically or, or religiously, we would perhaps classify them as liberals, they, they always come back to this. Well, yeah, but the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New. The God of the New Testament is a whole different God than the God of the Old Testament. That God in the Old Testament was judgment, judgment, judgment on sin. That God of the Old Testament was this holy God full of wrath, full of condemnation. But the God of the New Testament, he's just happy. He's just happy, happy, happy. He's the yellow smiley face in the New Testament. He's just grace and love and peace. See, they're not the same God. They're a different God. What does Hebrews 12 do? It says that's a lie. I, Jehovah, change not. I was a consuming fire then. I am a consuming fire now. There is no attribute of God that has changed because we've now changed testaments. There's no attribute of God because we're not at Mount Sinai, but we're at Mount Zion. God is the same God. God's holiness. That's why we've sang the two songs we have so far. God's holiness has not changed. God's hatred of sin has not changed. God hates sin just as much today as he did that day in Deuteronomy 4.24 when he gives those words to Moses. I hate idolatry. I'm a consuming fire. As much as God hated the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, as much as God hated the sin of Nadab and Abihu, as much as God hated the sin of those 250 followers of Korah with their censors, those protesters of the day, demanding their equality before God. As much as God hated that, God hates your sin and God hates my sin. God's holiness, God's hatred of sin, God's judgment, God's requirement, God's character, God's being has not changed. He is still a consuming fire. That's the statement of facts. Secondly, the passage also gives to us, though, a statement of grace. Therefore, therefore, let us us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But our God is a consuming fire. Yeah, but you've received a kingdom. But our God is this consuming fire. He hates sin. Yeah, but you've received a kingdom. Do you and I deserve that kingdom? No way. Do you and I earn that kingdom? No way. Do we deserve it? No. Do we work for it? No. How do we receive? Well, that's the key word, right? We are receiving. We are not earning. We are not getting. We are receiving. It is a gift that comes to us. 
It is coming from someone else. The kingdom is being granted to us. It's being given to us as a gift. A gift that we do not deserve. A gift that comes to us only through the merits of Christ. Only through the finished work of Christ. Only through the body and blood of Christ. I didn't even suggest to Jesus that he die for my sin. I didn't even think of the thought he could die for my sin. It's all of grace. Because it's all of God. Even though my God is a consuming fire. I receive a kingdom. I'm not at the end of the consuming fire. I'm not at the end of that judgment. I'm at the end of grace. Because of Christ. That's been the point of Hebrews all along, right? That's why... That's why Arthur Pink, in his book on Hebrews, refers to this as the theme that we have been following, the supremacy of Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all about focusing on Christ and what Christ has done and what Christ has earned. And this unshakable kingdom that we spoke of last Sunday evening is only ours because we receive it. And it is an unshakable kingdom, which implies a king. Which is where our, our brother, Pastor Sasha, took us on Thursday night. That he is the one with all authority. Our king, the one with all authority, Jesus Christ, ushers us into his kingdom. An unshakable kingdom. Let, let me give you three other terms that describe the unshakable kingdom. The unshakable kingdom is the same thing we mean by eternal life. It's the same thing we mean by what Peter calls it in 1 Peter chapter 1, that incorruptible inheritance. It's the same thing that Paul means when he calls it our unfading hope. The kingdom. The rule of Jesus Christ over every square inch of this universe. Including every square inch of my mind. Every square inch of my heart. Every square inch of my wallet. Every square inch of my feet. Every square inch. The rule of Christ is over. And it's unshakable. Let us then be grateful. See, that's part of grace. Thanks is grace. That's actually what it means in the Greek. Charis. It's the same way we translate grace. Let us be gracious. Let us be thankful. Let us show forth our gratitude. 
Why? Why should I be gracious? Why should I show gratitude? Why should I show thanks? Because God is a consuming fire. God didn't somehow, with the birth of Jesus Christ, go, you know, I'm not going to look at people's sin anymore. I'm just going to pretend people don't sin anymore. It's the way the modern evangelical church would have us look at it. We go down through the litany of stuff. They just wink at sin now. They, They just go, well, that don't really matter. Well, that doesn't really mean that. God might have meant that in the Old Testament, but he doesn't mean that in the New Testament anymore. Because God's changed. I, Jehovah, change not. I am still the consuming fire. And my sin, my sin is a whole lot worse than Nadab and Abihu. My sin is a whole lot worse than those 250 people. My sin is a whole lot worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. You know why? Because Sodom and Gomorrah had only list one sin. One type of sin. I got a whole lot more than that. There should be nothing left of Bob Van Manen. But I am receiving an unshakable kingdom. And with gratitude, With gratitude, I come to the Lord. Now, what does that gratitude look like? It looks like responsibility. Third, the statement of responsibility. What does the gratitude look like? Oh, God, I'm really thankful. Oh, God, here's 10 bucks in the collection plate today. Oh, God, here's, here's a few minutes of my time in the morning. And let me give you 30 seconds of prayer. Oh, God. Hey, it's Communion Sunday. I, maybe I'll show up to church today. Ah, yeah, but I'm on vacation. It's too much work to find a church to go to. It's just, let's let's just pull up the live service. You know, it's so much work getting up on a Sunday morning, getting the kids ready and all of that. It's just, oh, I just turn on the computer, watch Pastor Bob, drink my coffee, maybe have a cinnamon roll. What's the responsibility of the gratitude? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us then offer to God. Here's the responsibility. To offer to God acceptable worship. The responsibility is to offer. What does that word mean? To offer something. Is that to... Give something I do not need? Is that to give the change? Is that to give the leftovers? Or does offer imply sacrifice? 
Does offer imply, yeah, I actually have to give something up. God expects me out of what he has done because he is a consuming fire who has given to me an unshakable kingdom. He actually expects me to sacrifice something. He expects me to give something that is costly to me. Whether it's my time, whether it's my wallet, whether it's my life, whether it's my pride, whether it's myself, he expects me to sacrifice it, to give it up. Oh, not to earn his grace. I've already got his grace. This is just the response to offer to God acceptable worship. That which is well-pleasing to God. That which God wants me to do. Here, God, let me show you my thanks. I hope you're happy with what I came up with to make you happy. You should take great delight. After all, Bob thought of this. I thought of this. I thought this would be a good idea and that you'd like this form, this expression of worship. No, it's acceptable worship means that which pleases God. And God in his word has told me what pleases him. He's told me what kind of worship he wants. And no, that doesn't mean it's all somber. That doesn't mean it's all, hmm, I've got to look as grouchy as I can because that's the only worship God accepts. No, he wants worship that is joyful. Worship that is expressive. That's what he commands us. Acceptable worship. It means we go through an ongoing study of God's word. What is acceptable worship? What does God desire? I seriously wonder. Okay? I do. Okay? And, and I'm saying this from my heart. I do. When I plan an order of worship for a Sunday, I stop and ask, what does God find acceptable? When I pick the song, what is acceptable? I seriously wonder, in the modern evangelical church, how many worship leaders stop to spend time to ask the question, what does God want me to do this Lord's Day? Or is the question, what do the people want? What do the people want? What do they want? What do they want? I'll bet they'd like some bright flashing lights. I'll bet they'd like smoke coming up from the stage. Oh, that's what people really want. People want a coffee bar in the back. Let's let, give them a coffee bar so they can bring the coffee in. That's what people want. The question is not what do people want. The question is what's acceptable to God? Why? Because he's a consuming fire. The story of Nadab and Abihu certainly proves that. You can't just give God anything. We have to give God that which is acceptable. And it needs to be with reverence. That means caution. 
It means holy caution. It means always stopping. Remember Mount Sinai? There was a fence. Don't approach. Use caution. Be careful. You're approaching the consuming fire. Yeah, there ought to be some caution. There ought to be some care. There ought to be some stopping that says, wait. Think this out. What does the word say? And it means that about you as you come to worship as well. As you exercise some holy caution. What what does God desire from me when I come into his presence? How, How does God want me to approach him? With what attitude? Do I need to come into worship? With what tools do I need to come into worship? With what physical awareness do I need to come into worship? Why? Because our God's a consuming fire. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not. And he desires worship that's acceptable to him, but also that there is this reverence, a care that we take. It's a care in our words. It's a care in our language. It's pretty commonplace today in the in churches for ministers to use what I would say is gutter language. Really? Our God's a consuming fire. Really? Where, where's the reverence? And I'm not talking like some of you do about me using, you know, not the be quiet part, but the other term that is sometimes used. I, I'm talking gutter language. It's catchy. It really gets the men. That isn't the focus. The focus is not what gets the men. The focus is what pleases God. With reverence and awe. The word awe here implies the idea of amazement, of wonder. That at this moment, you're just thinking, what a God we have. He's a consuming fire. But in Christ, through Christ, he's given me an unshakable kingdom. I am receiving by grace eternal life, an incorruptible inheritance, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. An unfading hope. I'm not at the end of the consuming fire. In fact, I'm held tight in his love. Let us thus worship God with acceptable worship. In reverence and awe. 
Father, thank you again for your word and for its teaching to us this morning. Take this word, apply it to our hearts, even as we now come to this table and realize what a grace it is to be here. In Christ, God's people say, Amen.